So I don't know if you've ever met somebody uh, passionate that made you cringe. You ever met somebody that's passionate but they made you kind of cringe? Simply because they really didn't have any idea what they were really talking about. I'm sure you've, you've seen people like that here or there. I'm sure if you were to be honest, you may have been that person a time or two. Passionate about something only to find out later on, oh, I didn't really know what I thought I knew back then. Has that ever happened to you? You see, I think, I think it's happened to all of us in life, right? When we, were, when we were younger, we were passionate about certain things only to realize that maybe our parents were more correct than we were in our assessment. This morning, we're going to take a look at specifically two things when it comes to a passionate defense that all of us should have in our lives when it comes to the gospel and the word of God. We'll be looking at two men who were both passionate, but one was lacking and the other one was complete in their defense. So number one, we're going to be looking at accurate but lacking, verse, uh, chapter 18, verses 24 through 28, and that'd be Apollos. And then number two, accurate and complete, chapter 19, verses 1 through 10, and that would be the Apostle Paul. So number one, accurate but lacking, in chapter 18, verses 24 through 28. Now a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he desired to cross to Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. For he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. So one of the things that we find here is the narrative in Acts pivots to Apollos, who we are introduced to here. And I just want to kind of mention a few quick facts about Apollos. Apollos was a Jewish man who studied in Alexandria, Egypt, which was known for its incredible library and university. That would be kind of considered the Harvard of that time. This was founded by the great Alexander the Great, of which there were at least 16 cities named after him around the world. He just really preferred his name to be on all these cities that they conquered. This city had a large population of Jewish people, actually up to a third if we, if we, if we look at the data, Known for being the intellectual center of that day, Alexander did not just simply conquer by imposing his worldview on those that he conquered. He actually had a very clever strategy. And I know some of you have probably heard this before, but it's important to, to emphasize because it builds the case in this text. Alexander allowed Jewish people to not only practice their religion and culture, but also introduced other options for them to enjoy. So he didn't just come right out and tell them, here's what I want you to believe, here's how I want you to practice your faith. Um, I'm going to let you practice your faith, but I'm going to give you all these options right here as well. So what he would do is he would introduce educational centers that taught religion, history, and math. They didn't prohibit the Torah, they just introduced you to their gods as well. They mixed the Jewish worldview with the Greek. In fact, he set up libraries right near their synagogues encouraging the Jewish people to keep learning and to not be so closed-minded. Sound familiar today? 
exposing the Jewish people to all sorts of pagan ideas and practices, which is why you have the Hellenistic Jews that come along in the scene. He also set up athletic competitions that were very foreign to the Jewish people. This became the basis for the Greek Olympic Games, which we still continue to this day in some form. Paul even uses the metaphor of running the race from their understanding here. In fact, the duties of priesthood were hindered because there weren't enough priests willing to work in the temple at times. They were distracted and wanted to go see the men in the arena. Another thing that he set up was news, music, and art from other parts of the world. He brought that right in. In and of itself, none of these things are bad, but what they end up doing is influencing the Jewish people away from their faith. These new ideas brought in other cultural practices that became an interest for the Jewish community and sway, swaying many of the Jewish people. The last thing that he did was he created theaters for comedy and tragedy plays. The layouts of the theaters we even have today are based on the development of the Greeks. Jesus even used a term that we're probably all familiar with and the Jewish people were familiar with at that time when he used the term hypocrite, which is an actor playing a role and pretending to be somebody else by wearing a mask. So let's see, I don't know if you're paying attention, how is that relevant to today? How would even what this context here in Acts declares to us, how would that be relevant to us today? Well, places of education, do we not see an influence that they have over the children in our culture? Instead of arguing, we actually have to be honest. You see, the, the problem is with a lot of, how, how can I say this, nicely but probably blunt, ignorant parents that are self-deceived when they assume that they can send their children to a school and their, children can be the, their, their child can be the evangelist at six years old. Uh, last time I checked, they didn't go through all the apologetic series of, of even Schaefer, for that matter. So I'm not sure how much they could defend when it comes to their faith. There's a lot of presuppositions there that our children will do just fine if we put them in certain environments. Could it be that sports is a big area of influence even our church today? where people are enamored by that to the point of being distracted from other press, more pre pressing matters in their lives. What about the news? One thing I think should be banned more frequently is the news. I think it does more destructive damage to our culture than we would like to admit. Here's a fact that really I think many times we, don't take, for, we take for granted is God's word is the only thing that's absolute. A lot of the things that you read in the news is slanted. It's very much written to influence your opinion. And many times with partial truths out there. You see, cultural influences through media are what are used even today. Are we not influenced by things that we read by searching on Google, the music we listen to, the movies that we pay to watch? Here's what I think is fascinating. What we don't realize is many times our Christian worldview, we're messing up by paying somebody to do that to us. We're paying somebody to mess with our Christian worldview. It isn't that we just walked in unannounced or we didn't even realize it. We're paying certain people to influence our mentality. 
It's in this context that Apollos was trained in the Old Testament, but also saw the prevalence of the Greek culture there. And he was able to debate with the Jewish people in Ephesus, which would be modern-day Turkey today. As far as being skilled, Apollos is known to be an eloquent man and mighty in scriptures. Scripture tells us that he's instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. What Scripture is telling us is that Apollos knew his stuff. He wasn't just some ignorant man that went out of his way to try to debate people, as we see many people today, for some reason, attempt. He was only familiar with the baptism of John, and he didn't fully understand the implication of the Holy Spirit and faith in Jesus Christ. In a real sense, Apollos may have been a better, better speaker in comparison to Paul. But he had some things that still needed to be clarified. Which is why we read here in this text that Aquila and Priscilla, those that had spent quite some time with Paul, they actually spent a good length of time. And they got a lot of Paul's theology. They had a lot of influence from Paul themselves. They take him aside and fill in the gaps or the missing pieces, if you will, in his theology. What we see here is Apollos is an, a passionate speaker, but is lacking in, his, in some of his understanding of Scripture. You see, Scripture tells us that he, he was accurate, but still needed help with others to get a more precise understanding of the gospel message. To understand water baptism, to understand the accomplishment of Jesus Christ on the cross, to not look forward to Messiah, but Messiah had already come, he had already paid. You see, Apollos, with his incredible knowledge of Scripture, was only aware of John's baptism and the need for repentance. He was accurate in, the assessing, in, in assessing the need for Messiah as he connected the dots in repentance being necessary in turning from sin. But repentance from sin without turning to Christ is not a complete gospel. He was incomplete in his understanding in the last part of the message of the gospel. In the message of the gospel, we don't take Christ without repenting of sin, nor do we just repent of sin without taking Christ. Both are necessary. Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection secured salvation, and the Holy Spirit had now come on those who placed their faith in Jesus Christ. And it's in this context that Apollos wants to join the brethren in Achaia, which is the area of Corinth. So, Apollos gets sharpened in his theology by Aquila and Priscilla, and he goes back and becomes an encouragement to those in the faith. He becomes a reinforcement, if you will. There are certain people I do wonder sometimes if God would reach them and break them of the chains and blindness that they have towards the gospel, what kind of an influence they could have for the Christian faith. There are adamant God-haters out there that are wise intellectual men that I could just, I can only imagine what kind of an influence they would be for the faith if God broke their will and they became the saving faith. You see, Apollos didn't stop preaching boldly. He got recalibrated a bit in his theology, but he continued preaching boldly and passionately. This time he made it a point, we see that right here in the text, that he made it a point to connect to Christ. 
that Jesus is the Messiah. So he had been stating over and over that repentance is important. But this time he made sure to connect that Jesus is that Messiah that John foretold about. A couple points that need to be made here, and I just want to park here for a moment and just see how, how does this really work out for us. Just because you may not have complete knowledge in every area of theology does not mean that you should stay quiet. I think there are too many Christians that wait for themselves to be perfect in all areas of theology before they share theological things with others, before they discuss with others the gospel, before they discuss with others what sin is, what justification is, what sanctification is. You are not going to have a complete knowledge base of theology and be completely accurate right up front. It takes time. It's a learning process. Even Paul had to be instructed by Jesus in the wilderness. And Paul himself as a Pharisee knew much of Scripture. If you're growing in your knowledge of God, he will send you others to sharpen your theological sword, if you will. It's one of the reasons why a lot of people leave, leave churches that are very shallow in their theology. If they start pursuing the Word of God, that 10 steps to a better relationship just can't cut it for them anymore. They want more depth. They want more of God's Word. They want to understand who God is. They want to know all the depths of Scripture and not just the areas that they prefer. You do realize there are a lot of truths of Scripture that we probably don't find as fascinating to unpack at times. I don't know if you have them. I do. But once I start digging, you start seeing those truths be a huge benefit to your life. Just as mentioned earlier, the Trinity itself, if you had studied that, if you actually took the time and said, you know what, I really want to understand what the Trinity looks like. Believe me, you won't fully arrive. But in your pursuit of understanding the Trinity, you're going to see glorious truths you've never seen before. Which is one of the unfortunate things, a lot of churches, their cliche statement is, it's all about Jesus, and they don't teach about the Father, they don't teach about the Holy Spirit in the proper context of all of them, and the fact that they are three separate persons of the Trinity. Is it about Jesus? Of course it is. But in that simple statement, what we're telling people is we don't really want you to dig more, more deep than that. Just be fine with Jesus as we present Him. If you find yourself passionate about God's Word, be sure to represent it well. Even with the lack of complete knowledge, Apollos represented Scripture accurately. Let, let, me, let me give you a big piece of advice that I, I follow very strictly in my own life. If I'm not sure about a certain topic, I don't pretend I know about it. If there's a certain doctrine in Scripture that I really would like to unpack, but I'm not as well-versed as I would like to be, I don't bring it up as a topic of conversation with people that I know are going to ask me questions about it. I go to others that have studied that topic out well better than I have. Be careful that you do not find yourself slipping in key areas of doctrine. Listen, this is one of the biggest things that really has been mentioned in our study in Jude. You can't let off the gas pedal when it comes to your, your faith in God. You have to be accurate. The teaching of Scripture matters. 
And saying, I don't really care what others think, I think this is what the Bible means, is going to be a very dangerous way to study the Word of God. Here's the truth, church. You can fall into apostasy if you don't take doctrine seriously. If you've been reading Hebrews, that's the warning throughout that book. You will find the writer of Hebrews keeps reemphasizing the importance of pressing on, persevering, and that we are to, to keep going to maturity in Christ. It's important to be as accurate and complete as we can be in our theology, which is what Paul was here. Number two, accurate and complete, chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus. And finding some disciples, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, We have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, Into what then were you baptized? So they said, Into John's baptism. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now the men were about twelve in all. And he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. What happens here is Paul encounters others at Ephesus that seem to be very similar to Apollos. In being baptized by John, but incomplete or lacking in their doctrinal understanding. It's very possible that, that they didn't even recognize Jesus as Messiah from what we see here. These are mentioned as disciples, which is very much implied that they were disciples of John. In their answer about baptism, that's exactly what they declare to Paul. Paul goes ahead and spells it out for them as Aquila and Priscilla did with Apollos because he's accurate and complete in his understanding of the gospel in connecting that to the baptism of John. You see, John the Baptist was pointing to Jesus as one that was coming in his baptism. Paul was preaching one of turning away from sins to Christ, who is the Messiah. He's already come. It's already finished. It's already accomplished. The difference would be that the gospel that John preached was looking ahead at what would take place. The gospel Paul was proclaiming was one of looking back at what had already been accomplished, secured eternally, in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. What was the missing ingredient or misunderstanding, if you will? They, they give it away right here in the text. We haven't even heard of the Holy Spirit. They didn't even understand who the Holy Spirit was. 
What Paul is not doing here is simply a new filling of the Holy Spirit. What is implied here is that they didn't fully understand the complete gospel, as they may have actually themselves been taught by Apollos previously. Paul lays out the gospel to them and declares that Jesus had come, he is the Messiah, and faith is all that's required. The water baptism signified identification with Christ as the perfect sacrifice. You see, those that were baptized under John were still to be baptized when they came to saving faith in Christ. Because this is actually the only rebaptism mentioned in Scripture, by the way. It is here that Paul lays his hands on them and the Holy Spirit comes upon them. As happened earlier in Acts 8, they did not receive the Holy Spirit through baptism, but by the laying of hands by the Apostle Paul. Although the Holy Spirit can come upon people at different times as we read through the book of Acts. Laying on of hands is one of them in Acts 8 and here in 19, and also just at the mention of the gospel in Acts chapter 10, verse 44. These tongues that were given here, as implied throughout the book of Acts, are a real language validating the message of the apostles. Uh, this was not some gibberish. Why would I say that? Well, if you have your Bibles or look up on the screen, I think we'll have it up. 1 Corinthians 14, 22. Here's, here's what Paul actually writes to the church of Corinth. Therefore, tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophesying is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. So, tongues were assigned to unbelieving Jews in the early church as a confirmation that God was calling His church and sent His Holy Spirit. This was not gibberish as many practice today. Now, where do I get that it was assigned to unbelieving Jews? Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, same book, but right in the beginning of that book, Paul makes this statement in verses 21 through 25. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, to the Jews a stumbling block, and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Constable, in his commentary, points out the following in regards to the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues. And I'm just going to summarize it as best as I can. In Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, the speakers were the 12 apostles and possibly others. The audience were the unsaved Jews and the speaking tongues. Really, the purpose was to validate for Jews the coming of the Spirit. In Acts chapter 10, verses 44 through 47, the speakers were Gentiles. The audience was saved Jews. And it was to validate for Jews God's acceptance of the Gentiles. And here in chapter 19, speakers were John the Baptist. The audience were Jews and Gentiles. And it was to validate for Jews Paul's message. So when it comes to 
The gift of tongues, it is not as it's practiced today. We're not going to park here much longer because I want, to, I want to take some time on prophesying. What does that look like? What does it mean that they prophesied? What were these disciples doing who had just placed their faith in Christ in prophesying? Well, we get a description of pro- what prophesying looks like also in 1 Corinthians. Look at chapter 14, verse 3. Gives you a descriptive analysis of what prophesying looks like. But he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. What does that tell us? Prophesying by the power of the Holy Spirit involves heralding God's truth to help build others up and to bring words of comfort to the hurting. This was a gift that enabled ministry of God's truth to the people of God. Now, as we go back in Acts, Paul ends up going to the synagogue at Ephesus and speaks boldly for three months about the kingdom of God. The rule and reign of Jesus Christ in the kingdom and his securing of salvation by his death, burial, and resurrection. You have to understand a a, a literal earthly kingdom was still taught by the Apostle Paul. And unfortunately, that part gets deleted by many today. Jesus has reigned and will reign. Once he conquered death, he now has rulership over this earth. And when he comes back, that's what he's taking back in its entirety. There are those that adamantly oppose the way, as the scripture says, What is the way itself? Well, Jesus declared it to us in John, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. Simply, the way was known as those that followed Jesus. That's what they were known by. Paul moves on as he does in times past once he's faced with blasphemous opposition. He's not quick to continue to throw pearls before swine. To put this in proper perspective again, When those that we share the gospel with get to a point of being vile and blasphemous towards Christ, we step away. We don't continue to engage. It isn't just that we are wasting our time. We are literally doing contrary to what God wants. Paul moves on to a more neutral territory at the school of Tyrannus which was actually a place for all to be able to come in. Some interesting facts about this. One author points out that the meetings that Paul had was during their break time from work. They would take a break, and many would, if you will, take their naps during that time. It was during this time that Paul had an open opportunity at this school to be able to teach those that would come out. And many, even though they were exhausted from a a day of work, would come out to hear Paul. And they would, if you will, discuss the Word of God. In fact, that was the only time in the day that it wasn't occupied by others, which is what gave Paul an opportunity. While some had time in their day, they made discipleship a priority. 
they gather together to hear Paul sharing the word with them. Listen, church, this shows the dedication of these disciples who, when they had time out of their busy schedule, found it important to hear the word of God. They made it a point to join in the study of the Word of God. So one thing that's hard sometimes as a pastor to communicate is how important discipleship is and not have the many that get excited right up front only to see that passion and drive for the Word of God die out. It's unfortunate, but it happens too frequently. And I'm not saying this to knock anybody that has a struggle at times to be consistent in their walk with God. We all do. I'm saying, church, that in order for us to be accurate, your sword needs to be sharp, theologically speaking. You can't go into battle if you can't use the Word of God properly. And unfortunately, for some of us, we don't even know where our Bibles are at times. We're looking. You see, a committed disciple of Jesus Christ can't help but tell others about what they're learning from God's Word. Truth is, discipleship takes time. And we see that here, that this went on for two years, and many others heard the Word because of what was going on. In this discipleship group, if you will, they influenced the community and the greater part of Asia. I think so many times when we study the Word of God together, we tend to think, what are we going to really do and accomplish by doing this? But I promise that the Word of God is powerful because Scripture declares it to be so. And it's sharper than any two-edged sword. So the point there that the text says in Hebrews is that there is something there We don't stand a chance against if we do use it properly. The world can't oppose it. A committed disciple of Jesus Christ will go out of their way to tell others of what they've learned of Christ and the benefit that they have in fellowship with other believers around that word. It's very difficult, and and I don't know if you're like me like this, it's very difficult for me to hold a grudge against people if I read the word of God faithfully. It's just very difficult to just read words of Scripture that tell me that let no bitterness rise up in you, forgive one another, like those texts actually reading them that day. It's very difficult to hold a grudge against people if you're reading the Word of God faithfully. Listen, church, the sweetest memories we'll ever have as a church will be when we are gathered together around the Word of God. The early church understood this. Unfortunately, the modern church thinks other things are more important and advantageous for them. I tell my children all the time, I really do, to appreciate what you hear from Pastor Rizzo. He is right, there are so many things we need to watch out for. I don't think I appreciate it anywhere near as much as I do now, the faithfulness of the men of God. You have to understand, folks, I 
I grew up as a young boy in a Christian home, still wondering whether or not any of this was real. Because I realized that when I struggled with certain sin, it just felt like I could never find freedom. And I asked myself many nights without anybody around whether or not I really was a child of God. How could I do these things? It's in those dark nights that I started understanding one thing probably more intimately than I even do today, which is unfortunately where I beg God sometimes and plead that he'd bring me back to the passion I had when I was a young boy. Frankly, with no knowledge at all, but I want that passion back with the knowledge I have today, if that makes sense. And one of the things that I especially find mind-blowing, if you will, is that a God would care about me, would care about my sinfulness, would care enough to rescue me from that, and would actually want to use a person like me. You see, one of the things that I, I find myself struggling with even today as a pastor, more frequently than I'd like to admit, is I always know my kids can see my faults, they see my flaws. I see, I know that many of you know my flaws. If you've been around me enough, you do. And one of the things that I probably have my heart break more than ever is that I really wish that you would not just see that broken man that I am many times, but that you would see that there is such a remedy for all of us, including myself, that I'm always trying to point you to. And you tend to think that I just am just being too harsh or too mean. I love what Spurgeon said when he talked about hell. He said, as sinners go to hell, let them go over our bodies. You see, so many Christians, they don't want the warnings of Scripture. They don't want to learn the Word of God. They don't want to read the Word of God because it would convict them too much. Which is sadly what's going on in many churches today. Many churches today prefer the world approving of them than other believers that want to sharpen their doctrine. They get offended when another believer tells them, hey, this is off in your church. You need to pay attention to what God's word says. Well, you're just being judgmental. If we're being judgmental, God's, God is the most judgmental of all of us and he has every right to do so. And his standard will always surpass all of ours. And when scripture does talk about judgment, it does tell us to right, righteously judge. The irony in the arguments of not judging is the ones that say not to judge are judging those that are judging. So in a real sense, they've negated their point. You see, one of the things I think we have taken for granted as a church is how much we've been exposed to the Word of God here. And church, I want you to start feeling deeply the truths of Scripture, that it doesn't just stay as mere head knowledge to us. Good doctrine should produce good fruit in our lives. We ought to be more compassionate, we ought to be more loving, we ought to be firm in our stance, but also bold enough to proclaim the truth. Men need to own what they do wrong at home. Ladies need to own what they do wrong. 
Our children need to see what we're doing as parents in bringing them to Christ. Paul with these disciples at the school of Tyrannus impacted Asia. He impacted the whole region through this Bible study, if you will. They heard the gospel, and they heard about this through the discipleship that was going on. In fact, from what history tells us, many churches were started from this simple process of discipleship here. Right in this region. So in conclusion, church, I have a simple question for you. Where is your passion? Where is your passion? Look, the truth is we all have things that we're passionate about. Things that excite us, things that motivate us. Paul was passionate about Christ and God's Word. He was accurate with it as well. So many are passionate but so inaccurate in dealing with God's Word. Listen, church, if you're neglectful in sharing with others the gospel because you don't feel that you know everything, what you do know you should share passionately. And in the areas that you're weak in your theology, you need to brush up on those areas and put the time into study. Nobody can do that for you. My question to you and me is, are our passions, are your passions, are they misguided? Are you passionate about the things that really don't matter at the end? Do you find yourself lacking any passion when it comes to the things of God? In a real sense, church kind of bores you on Sunday morning. There's no thrill, there's no excitement. I'm not talking we need strobe lights and a dance party in here, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about if you're passionate, then it matters to you that you're here. More so than, all right kids, it's Sunday, let's go. Maybe you need to go back to that discipleship that you told everyone else was so exciting, but it's kind of become dull for you now. Listen, we're not always going to be excited about everything in our lives all the time, right? Let's, let's just be real for a moment. We've all had ups and downs in our marriages, those of us that have been married. Have we always been passionate the same way? No. We've been excited about our children at times and then absolutely embarrassed and wanting to go, oh no, right? The truth is this, we need to go back to doing what God's called us to and stop looking at everybody else. You have to ask yourself the question, and this is really the big one for all of us all the time, are you willing to give up anything else to know God on a more deeper level? What are you willing to give up? If you're not willing to give up anything to follow Christ, then you don't understand what discipleship is. That's the whole point. How important is God's word to your family? Fathers, how important is it in our homes? How important is God's word to you personally? Do the children know that God's word matters to you? 
Do your coworkers know? Do your family and friends, do they know? Here's a big one, church. How important is it to you to handle God's word accurately? I cannot tell you what terrifies me more than to my children to grow up one day and to deny all the things that we've taught them in this home and in this church because we didn't care about accuracy of Scripture. You see, one of the most dangerous things in the church today is the false doctrine that's crept in. So many think it's just a matter of interpretation when it's truly a lack of study in that church. Well, I feel this is what the Bible says. Well, that's cute. That's not what the text was talking about. And you're too lazy to actually look it up. Because your feelings are very fickle, and mine are as well. Which is the reason why so many don't graduate from John 3.16 to their theological knowledge base. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's all my theology in a nutshell. That's all I know of God. That He so loves me. That's not an indication, actually, in the text anyways. Church, I'm going to close with this text, and I want you to hear the words of Paul to Timothy. This is from the Amplified Version. 2 Timothy 2.15 Study and do your best to present yourself to God approved a workman tested by trial who has no reason to be ashamed, accurately handling and skillfully teaching the word of truth.